we continue our Harmony of the Gospels, two passages for us to look at quickly this morning. Go to Luke chapter 21. I want to read the first four verses there, and then we'll jump over to Mark chapter 12. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. We read Mark's account of the same event. Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us what it means to give sacrificially today. Lord, I pray that we would not at all feel brow-bashed, but that we would feel encouraged and challenged by the example of this widow. The truth is we all have room to grow in all of your graces, but particularly we all have room to grow in giving. Make us open. Make hearts and minds open today, Lord. And we seek your face in this matter. May you teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, there is no more welcome news to the soul which knows its bankruptcy than to be told that you can have true riches in Christ. There's no more blissful thought to one who knows that he is a sinner through and through, that there is a Savior who can wash you whiter than snow. There's no greater hope for one who knows his own desperation and knows he can't save himself than to desperately throw himself upon the mercy and grace of a gracious Heavenly Father. For this reason, the Gospels contain the most beautiful and hope-filled, life-changing message. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, God is able and willing to save you. We considered this in Jesus' words in the previous passage we looked at last time in Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus communicated his longing to gather Jerusalem like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And Jesus' longing was not merely in word. He willingly laid down his life to rescue sinners. It wasn't just a mere notion of sentimentality. It was reality. Jesus 
laid down everything that he might save wretched sinners. He took the penalty for sin upon himself, and he offers life to all those who will call upon his name. The Gospels give us hope because the Gospels give us Jesus. It's Jesus who is our hope. And the Gospel call is beautiful. It says that everything is done for us. Stop your confounded working. You can't work your way to heaven. Instead, trust in Him who worked in your stead. Trust in Jesus. You see, it's not something we could accomplish. And therefore, the gospel salvation is something that comes to us free. But yet, while it comes to us free, it came at great cost. The cost of Jesus' own life. You see, while the gospel is free, it is not cheap. And Jesus calls everyone who is weak and heavy laden to come unto Him, for He can and He will provide you rest. However, Jesus also demands that those who come to Him give Him everything. You can't hold anything back. If you want Christ, you must give all of yourself to Him. In exchange, you get all of Him. You give all of yourself, and He gives all of Himself. You see, there's no such thing as half a Christian. You're either His, or you're not His. Your identity is either found in Christ, or not. If so, He's not only your Savior, but He's your Lord. He's your Master. He's your King. If not, then your rejection of Him as King also means you've rejected Him as Savior. Should you attempt to establish your own righteousness think you can work your own way to heaven? Should you believe yourself to not need a Savior? Should you deny your own sinfulness? Should you try to establish your own righteousness? Should you try to promote yourself? When we read through these same Gospels with this glorious message, everything about the message will cut against the grain if you think yourself already to be righteous. If you think yourself not to need a Savior. To the hardened rebel who thinks himself righteous, Jesus makes some what will be considered by them unrealistic demands. If anyone does not hate his father, mother, sister, brother, even his own life, if anyone does not give up all that he owns and give it to the poor, if anyone does not take up his cross and follow Jesus, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. He says, you can't be my disciple if you don't give everything. You see, Jesus' disciples must give nothing less than complete surrender. They must put their complete reliance, their utter and complete dependence their undivided loyalty to Jesus as King and Lord. Because you can't enjoy the forgiveness that Jesus gives as the great high priest if you won't submit to him as your great high king. He is prophet, priest, and king. And all three offices come together. You can't pick and choose. Jesus isn't a buffet. He is either your everything or you will see him as a great and mighty judge one day. He's either the one who took your penalty upon his own back, or he's the one through whom penalty will be meted out against you one day. It's for this reason that the message which breathes real hope and life, that message that is called the wisdom and power of God to those who are being saved, can simultaneously be an offense and foolishness to those who are perishing. Have you ever noticed that the same gospel message can be greeted with such warm and welcome open arms by those who have been given new life, new hearts? They, they, this is life itself. Jesus is life. 
But to those who reject Christ, the gospel is unwanted news. It's foolishness. It's an offense. Those who reject Christ find themselves without God and without hope in this world. Those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will have the wrath of God continuing to abide upon them. And all they're doing is storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. Those rejecting the Savior will meet Him as their judge one day. So Jesus gives some silver warnings here toward the end of His public ministry. We noted that His last public address, where His disciples are present, but others are present as well, included a set of woes against the religious leaders. I mentioned while this probably had dual purposes, several purposes could be considered for the reason why Jesus had such strong and harsh language for the religious leaders. Certainly part of it was his concern for his own sheep, that they wouldn't be led astray, held captive to false doctrine. So he wants to delineate very clearly for his followers that the religious elite within Jerusalem were not men to be followed as it related to their lifestyle or their decisions. But it also could simultaneously function as a last warning, a last rebuke to these men who had hardened their hearts so much against Jesus and were breathing murderous threats and plotting and planning Jesus' destruction in hidden away chambers. One last opportunity for them to come to repentance. But Jesus... With the last part of his last couple days of ministry, he now is going to travel back out of the public spotlight. And he's going to spend the majority of his time talking with his disciples in private gatherings. And so we can even hear in this text, we're watching Jesus starting to walk away from the center of the temple. He's walking out of the temple. We know this because he travels into the court of the women. It's called the court of the women because it was as close as women could come to the temple. So men and women could be in the court of women. But women could not come into the court of the men. So Jesus is traveling out from the center of the temple, back outside of the city, eventually. And while he's moving through the temple complex, he comes to the outskirts of the court of the women. Daryl Bach explains that there, what Jesus found, were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles in the temple uh, forecourt which served to collect free will offerings that were used to underwrite temple worship. The reference to casting this money, throwing the money into these receptacles, really speaks to that reality. There's some amount of debate. There's a couple of different places you could give money, but what's unique about it is these little, they're pretty much like little trumpets set up, and you would deposit your money in the top of these, and then they would fall down into into below. And these are set up right on the outskirts of the, the court of the women. Provision was made in the temple through this means by, to receive religious and charitable contributions. Some people believe that there was actually even little, little signs in front of each of these you could give to certain things that were needs within Jerusalem. So from the harassment of the religious leaders and then Jesus' strong rebuke of them, we make now this sudden transition. It's here that we're provided with a brilliant contrast Jesus has just condemned the greed and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. And in particular, he criticizes their behavior toward widows of all things. Remember, he says, you are even those who devour widows' houses. 
They're taking advantage of those who are the weakest within society. Literally, it could be translated, eating them out of house and home, devouring their houses, eating their livelihood. These religious leaders were not involved in ministry to give, but they were involved in ministry to get. And sadly, people of this sort still exist to our own day. So what a contrasted picture is now given to us. Here's a representative of the very group that had been so mistreated. And what we find is a woman who is totally devoted to the Lord. She was interested in giving, while the religious leaders were only interested in getting. Scribes and Pharisees were concerned with external things, with the show. But this woman lived for God from the inside. And that had a tangible, physical, outward expression She came and gave a gift that welled up from her heart. And while the measure of her gift was not much compared with the contributions of the rich that were giving that day, there's something this widow had that no one else demonstrated there. So in a sermon entitled, When Giving Small is Giving All, I want to contrast the giving of the rich with the giving of this widow by looking through Jesus' perspective on the situation We'll look at tall giving, then small giving, then all giving together. First of all, tall giving. We see the sizable sums that come from the rich here. I have to back up and just explain, first of all, that our ability to give comes because God has first given to us. God created all things. Colossians 1.16, By Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So all things come into being through Jesus Christ. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why does He receive all glory, honor, and power? Because you created all things. See how creation is tied into the worship of God? The whole discussion of creation versus evolution, well, we have a philosophical debate about it. Understand that as Christians, creation is crucially important. Why? God receives glory for it. You see, those who care about God care about His glory. And how dare we try to strip Him of any bit of His glory? Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things Not only did you create all things, but because of your will they existed and were created. You desired them to be, and so they were. You're behind everything. You've created it all. Psalm 24, ultimately, everything is the Lord's. The earth and all it contains. Psalm 50, every beast of the field, the Lord says, is mine. The cattle on the thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. God's giving a rebuke to Israel here. He goes on to say, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world is mine and all it contains. God's reminding Israel, I don't need you. I own it all. How preposterous for us to ever think that God needs us. (laughs) That's to have a very small view of God and a very high self-inflated view of yourself. But sadly, we continue to struggle with those perspective issues, don't we? You see, everything created is therefore the rightful property of the Creator. If it has been created, it is something that is owned by the Creator. And what we know is that there is one being who is himself uncreated. 
That's God. He who has life in himself. But meanwhile, everything else is created, and therefore, he being the creator, everything is owned by him. Now, why is this important to stress? Because it's the proper starting place for all giving. The only reason we can give is because God first gave to us. Everything you have is God's. Can I say that again? Everything you have is God's. Nothing is yours. Oh, certainly, we understand as it relates to private property and all the rest that what is mine versus someone else's, and this becomes the basis for you know, thievery and stealing. You know, that only happens as a result of me taking what is the property of someone else. But we speak in human terms there because ultimately it's all God's. I might exercise a temporary control over a finite amount of resources. Some of us might have a slightly larger finite amount of resources that we exercise control over. But even the biggest names who exercise the most control over the most amount of resources... People like Bill Gates and the rest, all themselves have limited control for a certain amount of time. No one here owns anything. God owns everything. And we can only give because God first gave. You see, when we give, all we're doing is declaring that God is the giver of everything we have. And should we not have a giving heart means at least somewhere in there that we fail to recognize that everything we have is really God's. We're just stewards. We're just conduits. We've been given the role of transporters. You know, we should think of ourselves more like UPS delivery guys than anything else. You know, the UPS guy, if he came up to my house and said, you know what, I've got a package for you, but I'm actually going to keep it. Because I'd really like to have this. Like, what are you doing? That's not your job. Your job is to transport the good. Not keep it for yourself. Can you imagine a UPS guy, how long he'd have a job if he just took his truck and just started, you know, hoarding it away in a storage facility? How long do you think it would take for them to figure out, this guy has got some problems here, and when they did, he'd be fired, right? How often do we handle resources that God has granted us, like a UPS man that's hoarding goods? God didn't bless us to make us hoarders. God didn't give us so we could just store it away. God gave so we can give. God gave so we can be conduits of blessing. He allows us the privilege of participating in the joy of giving. And through that, God then uses us as an avenue whereby His goodness and His provision is known. God displays His power. Think of an example of this. How does God work through means to display himself? He he can display his power through the creation of stars and planets. You ever think, why so many stars? Why such an immense galaxy? Why stars that we've never even seen or heard of? Why all of this? Because all that has been put in the heavens ultimately declares the wisdom and power of a great God. God uses, make, makes use of the creation of stars and planets to real, make us realize our smallness and His greatness. He declares His greatness through the provision of stars and planets, among other things. But similarly, God can display His providential care for us and for others by using us as conduits of His blessing. You see, 
It's a blessing that He chooses to use us to show His provision to others. Have you ever been the recipient of a marvelous gift at a strange time? Somebody gave you something at a point of need that perhaps wasn't even announced to others. And through that moment, God used an individual as a conduit of His blessing to show that God provides. Sometimes those gifts come anonymously. We don't even know where it came from. Sometimes there's a face to it. But nonetheless, in the end of it, understand it's God's way of showing He's the provider. How often have you had the privilege of being a conduit of blessing? Where God has shown His provision through the way you handle your finances. God has shown Himself to be great in the area of providing Because as He's given to you, He's given you a heart to give it away. I'm sure at some point in your life you've experienced this sort of provision. And perhaps you have also shared that sort of provision with those whom God has placed in your path. We can only give because He first gave. But then there has to be an occasion for giving. In order for there to be an occasion for giving, there has to be an awareness of need. Now, on occasions such as Passover, it was customary to make voluntary offerings to the temple. I talked about those little treasury boxes and labels in front of them, furnishing you know, opportunity for filling needs, opportunities to give. Because the truth is, it's hard to give to someone's needs if you don't know what those needs are. So you understand that part of our responsibility as stewards of God's blessings is to make ourselves aware, become informed about what needs around us exist. In order to do that, we have to have open eyes and open ears. We need to be listening for opportunities to give and to help those around us. You have to know what is needed and why it's needed. But once you become aware of a need, you then also have to be compelled to meet the need. Once you hear about the need... You have to feel some sort of desire from the inside to do something about the need, to help in some way to fill the need. Here's Jesus. He's sitting at the treasury. And there's a good number of rich people who are making contributions. They felt some amount of compunction to give. Something was motivating their giving. We know on other occasions Jesus had some strong rebukes for those who gave for the sole purpose of other people seeing their giving. That your hearts are wrong, your motivations are wrong. We don't have any description on this occasion about the riches' motivations in giving. There's nothing said either for good or ill regarding their motivations. We don't have a knowledge of their specific motives here. But we do have previous occasions in which Jesus had criticized some of the people's giving because they gave with impure motives. Giving that was meant to be a spectacle for others to see rather than to really meet the needs of those who had them. But this is a really interesting situation. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine as we're passing the offering plate here this morning, Jesus watching the offering plate, walking around the sanctuary as you're seeing the offering plate come into your hands and then being passed on to the next one? And here's Jesus. He's watching the treasury. He's sitting there watching people give. He's watching. Would it impact your giving at all if Jesus was physically present here when the offering plate was passed? Because whether he's physically present or not, he's present. And Jesus 
cared enough about the giving of that day that he's observing it. He's watching it. Do you think Jesus watches our giving today? Do you think he cares about our giving today? So there he is. And he's watching. The rich are giving large sums. Great sums of money are being put in to these contribution containers. But it's not the rich in their giving that draws his attention. Point number two, small giving. Copper coins from a widow. Jesus here draws our attention to humble, sacrificial giving. Now this woman would have been completely ignored. But it's her that Jesus draws attention to. Understand that widows, especially in that day, had very small opportunities for making any money, any income at all. Unless you were the widow of a rich man, you were in trouble in widowhood. If you were married to a poor man, when your husband died, and if you didn't have any children who really took you in, you were in trouble in that society and in that day. The sorts of job opportunities that exist for women today were not present as much then. So to speak of a widow is merely like proverbial for the poorest of society. You know, widows and orphans are grouped together because they're the ones that are the weakest and poorest and the most defenseless. That's why God has huge rebukes for Israel when they mistreat widows and orphans. You, you mistreat the people who are the weakest, the ones you should be looking out for the most. You're treating the most horrible of ways. So Jesus literally directs our gaze to this poor widow who's in the midst of a busy temple complex. She would have, you know, most likely have been overlooked or disregarded at best. She perhaps would have been insulted or criticized at worst. For what business did she have coming to the temple to offer a gift? What did she have to bring? The one lady which everyone would overlook is the one who Jesus has special attention to. So all these significant contributions are coming in from the rich. All these large amounts of money are coming in. But it's not them that Jesus is so concerned with. His only comment regarding their giving is in the context in which they gave. They're just there serving as a foil to how this woman gave. Jesus draws the attention of his disciples to consider the nature of her giving because it was her giving that stood out in the temple complex. It's fascinating because she who would have been the backdrop to this whole story becomes center stage. And all the rich are the backdrop. It's as if the spotlight centers on this woman. All the rich are giving their huge sums of money. This widow gave all. The word in Greek is interesting. It's a word that can be translated livelihood. It comes from the very word, the, the root word, life. She gave her life. Many would have rebuked this widow's actions. How could she give the little bit that she had away? Isn't she the one, one of the very poor that these, contrib- these contributions are supposed to go to? I mean, think about that for just a minute. If among these trumpets was a thing for charitable giving to the poor, who are you going to give that money to? A woman like her. This is like passing the plate at a needy convention. 
and saying, you're the ones we're here to give to, but instead they just start giving. The very person who should be the recipient of these funds is the one who is giving to these funds. How transforming it would be if everyone, no matter how much they had, was actually involved in giving. Can I say it this way? Those of us who have been beneficiaries of charity, we should know all the more how important it is. And even with the little bit that God has given us to give. Jesus doesn't blame this woman for being unwise or undiscerning. He makes no comment that she's being unwise here. He he doesn't necessarily praise her either, so that can also be noted. But he doesn't make a comment that he doesn't stop her from giving. Instead, he comments on her generosity. He comments on her liberality. And the only way she's able to do it is because she had complete and utter dependence upon the Lord for her daily bread. You know, when we get to those kinds of statements in you know, the, the model prayer, the example prayer, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Truth be told, for most of us, maybe you've had a moment in your life, maybe some of you are going through a moment like this, so I don't want to be too general here, but I think in vast majority of for us, none of us experienced what it means to ask for daily bread. Like, I don't know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. Maybe some of you have had those moments. A lot of us have so much plenty that we don't even understand what that means. This woman gave her very life. Whatever she had left was given. She gave a gift that was barely noticeable to men, but her example of giving has rebounded down through the ages. This scene still impacts us today. How can you hear this and not be impacted by it? I mean, our initial reaction to this is to try to justify it away, right? (laughs) Because we don't want to deal with the reality of what's being spoken here. This woman's crazy. She's out of her mind. How how on earth could she do this? But I wonder how many people have been encouraged to give and give with proper heart motivations as a result of this one woman's love for God. See, God can use the giving of the poorest among us to serve as an example to everyone else. Her example is still grabbing our attention today. Her actions are befuddling. They're convicting. They're compelling. They're awe-inspiring. There's just something about a person who's in a state like this woman's that resounds in a truly incredible way. I've been a part of City of Oak Ridge North planning meetings, uh, City Hall meetings for the past couple of months to come to realize about some of their plans for our property and all the rest to become intensely concerned about those meetings. And so I've been there at them. Um, I can't say that much profit has really come from the interactions, but at least I know what they're planning to do. That's at least helpful as far as that goes. But not, not long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, when they were in the middle of voting on a measure, they just voted on a measure that I didn't agree with, but they voted on a measure. And afterward, there was a little old lady who's been present at all these meetings, and she's been there for forever. She goes to all the meetings, and so she had prepared a statement to read to the city council. And so she had asked for special permission, so she came up to the microphone, and she read her statement. And the reason I bring it up is because her words were so touching. It was like as if she had grabbed a hold of the very situation. You know, I always want to stand up and applaud this lady for after she was done. When she was done, the city council pretty much just rebuffed her. She went back, and they didn't say a word about what she had said, and they just went on their merry way. But I can't help but think, like a moment like that, 
It's like this woman who's been disregarded, not concerned, people aren't concerned about, is the one who has something, some two cents that they should have listened to. Jesus highlights this woman's, on this occasion, this widow who came and gave. He's pleased with the giving of those who don't have much. See, we're, we're taught the lesson that no gift is too small. No gift is too small. A lot of times we talk about, you know, no gift's too large. But no gift's too small either. Even those who have very little can participate in the joy of giving. It goes like this. If you have, you have something to give. If you have, you have something to give. Leo the Great said it this way. No mercy is worthless before God. No compassion is fruitless. He has given different resources to human beings. He doesn't ask, though, for different affections. In other words, he's distributed as he sees fit. He's the owner of everything. So he saw fit to give me what I have. And now he calls me out of affection and love for him to give of the things he's given me. To give them back. And so he's called each of you. This widow had two leptons. Together they equaled a quadrant. A quadrant is half an Assyrian, which is one-sixteenth of a denarius. So the widow's contribution is one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now why go through all of that? Because one denarius was about the average daily wage for a worker. One-sixty-fourth of someone's daily wage is what's being described here. Two copper coins, two leptons, but one-sixty-fourth of someone's daily wage. Should you make rounds, let's say, you know, Let's say you made something around uh, 80 bucks or, you know, if you made $64 a day, that'd be like, that'd be like instead of being $64, you made $1. And that's all you had. You had $1 to live on. And then she comes and gives it all. Some question whether or not Jesus was commending this widow at all. The text doesn't say explicitly that Jesus is encouraging this behavior nor telling others to follow suit. He doesn't say that specifically. But he provides this comparative statement between the widow and the rich. I think it becomes quite evident, as far as I'm concerned, that Jesus is pointing this out because there's something exemplary about what this woman is doing. And it stands as such stark contrast to the religious leaders that are around her. He's providing an illustration here of what it means for one to be rich toward God. One who's not anxious about this life. One who is seeking after God's kingdom. One who, as a follower of Christ, was willing to sell everything. Was willing to leave everything out of her devotion to God. We don't see Jesus lamenting that this woman's been duped by the religious leaders into giving a gift. Some people believe that this is just an example of them devouring widows' houses. But we don't see Jesus lamenting that this woman's been duped by them. There's no indication that this gift is anything other than a free will offering. She's giving because she wants to, not because she's been tricked. Not that there weren't situations in which the religious leaders did those sorts of things. We saw that in the previous text. The reason I bring this up is because I think it's a good point to make here as well. God's going to deal with corrupt religious leaders. He has some stern words for them. Jesus got done pronouncing those woes against these religious leaders. So believe me regarding this, God's going to get charlatan preachers. God's going to take care of false teachers. But that does not take away from the generosity of this woman. 
Even if these men had corrupt purposes for those treasury boxes on that day, this woman gave with rightful intentions and motivations. And Jesus takes note of it. Philip Ryken says, The Bible doesn't tell us why the woman did this, but I think we know what she believed about God, what she had to believe about God to do this. She had to believe that God was glorious because she was giving him all of her earthly treasure. She had to believe that God was gracious because she was responding with the kind of costly generosity that only grace can compel. She had to believe that God was provident because once she had nothing to live on, she would have to depend upon him for absolutely everything. To her everlasting credit, here was a woman who offered God unconditional faith, undying gratitude, and unrestrained praise. Makes me think of the words in 2 Corinthians 8 and why we had it read this morning. The Macedonian churches, Paul says, had given out of their extreme poverty. He says, your extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Don't only think of it that way, right? Their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Here is one who gave to the Lord what she had. Because she recognized it was all his. She knew she could trust the Lord for tomorrow. Because he takes care of all of that. You see, when two cents is all that you have, you can start with those two cents. Don't despise small beginnings. Brings us to our third point. All giving. All giving. The perspective that Jesus gives us here. You see, there's a difference between giving what is left over and giving what is all. Giving what is extra versus giving your very life. The gifts gifts of the wealthy evoked no notoriety from Jesus because he knew the nature of their giving. There's nothing wrong with the rich giving. He doesn't criticize them for giving. He just says that there's nothing markedly notable about one who, after he's done everything else he wants, gives a tip, gives some of the surplus. But there is something notable about someone who gives in such a sacrificial way that it is everything that they have. Using the same rhyming scheme, I could think of a few other forms of giving which don't share much in common with the way that this widow gave, but we can all fall easily into. So I thought I'd just mention them quickly here. Some of us might engage in stall giving. (laughs) Stall giving. By that I mean giving that delays. I'm not going to give now. I'll give later. Someday I'll pray about that. I need to pray about that longer. (laughs) I need to spend a lot of time thinking about that. One day maybe I'll give. You got all those movie stall givers. And it's not pleasing to God. How about call giving? It might be those who, you know, like to make big announcements. They like to draw attention to themselves when they give. Jesus had some very harsh words to speak to those who engage in that. He pretty much just says, I mean, you get your reward in full right then. And that's the consequence. You get exactly what you want. Everyone will think you're a wonderful, generous person. But that's all you get. There are no rewards in heaven for that is his point. But also fall giving. You know, these are people who give out of guilt. <laughs> I've fallen. And so here I've given. They give because they've done something wrong. They think they can make up for something they've done wrong by giving large amounts of money. I sometimes wonder about celebrities in Hollywood, if that's why they give. <laughs> to try to ease their conscience and guilt for what they're engaging in. Oh, look at all the money I gave to feed the poor. And this kind of idea. Fall giving. There's also y'all giving. You know, I mean, yeah, I have that, that in here for Texas. 
giving, you know, giving that's unwilling to contribute yourself, but everyone else can do it. You know, I'm depending on everyone else to do it. Y'all should give, but I don't have to give, right? This is the one that passes the buck to someone else. How about this one? Wall giving. This is when you're up against the wall and you have nothing else to do but give. You know, this is like in the situation where for punitive reasons you're having to give. You know, you're doing community service because you did something wrong, not because you love to help others. You're serving time. Or this is the person who goes, I'm just going to, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm a rich man. I'm going to set up my will so when I die, it all goes to so-and-so. Now, again, I have no problem with someone deciding in their will to give money in that way. But understand this, my dear friends. You feel no sacrifice from that. At that moment, you couldn't keep it anyway. It's not in your hands anyway. So all now you're doing is you're making sure that it goes to someone else after I'm done with life. When I'm done, now I'll give it all away. I'd much rather be the man who dies with two pennies in my pocket than the man who has millions of dollars that are willed to be given away at some point. Remember, I think it was John Wesley. Some of you checked me on this. I can't remember who it was. This is the problem I get into when I try to put an illustration in. It's not my notes. Um, I think it was John Wesley who had made a determination that he was going to start giving more and more. And as he started to do ministry, he found that he kept getting more and more. It was almost like getting raises every year from things that he was doing. And so what he determined to do is that he just set his standard of living and said, no matter how much more money I make, I'm not going to buy a bigger house. I'm not going to get more stuff. And so what he did is he kept his standard of living the same through his whole life. And as God continued to give him more and more, he gave more and more away. Because if I was able to live here now, why can't I live here now forever and give it all away? I think there's something to be thought through when it comes to that sort of giving. See, there's giving what's left over, and then there's giving what is all. This is all giving. This widow gave all. She had two copper coins, and she gave it all. And Jesus says that her gift surpassed the rest. She gave more than everyone else. That sounds preposterous. Come on. This is probably the smallest gift that was given the entire day, but Jesus says what she gave was more than everybody else. You see, in this moment, we realize that the principle goes like this. God measures the gift not by the size of what is given, but by how much remains after we've given. He cares about the comparison between what we gave and what we kept, not what we gave and somebody else gave. That's not the comparison. The comparison is not, well, how are you doing in reference to so-and-so in the congregation? The comparison is, how much are you giving versus how much are you keeping? Instead of making horizontal comparisons between gifts being given, Jesus compares what's given with what was left in the person's possession after they gave. So everything about this woman was less than those around her, yet her gift was more than everyone's. See, here's the, here's the deal. In terms of real cost, this woman gave the most. Everyone else gave out of their abundance. This widow gave her very life. She gave her very livelihood. This reminds us, what does God care about ultimately the most? He cares about our hearts. He cares about our hearts. Little gifts can be taken for granted or ignored, but sometimes it's these gifts that are the greatest of all. Big gifts truly can come in small packages. The biggest and most generous gifts can come in the smallest amounts. James Edwards said, in purely financial terms, The value of her offering is negligible, unworthy to compare with the sums of the wealthy donors. 
but in the divine exchange rate, things look a little different. That which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. Right? These two copper coins, which made hardly a dent on the books of the treasury that day, is now found in the book of life. It's found in the Bible. Pages of Scripture. What a contrast is seen between this woman and the religious leaders. Remember, the religious leaders are trying to take Jesus' life. This woman is willing to give her life. The value of the gift given is measured in sacrifice and devotion. Two points I want you to grab here as I'm wrapping this up. What are some... What's a helpful application of this story? Well... First of all, it means that those who don't have much, when they give, they please the Lord. God looks upon the smallest offerings of the poor, should they come from a sincere and joyous heart. He looks on that with great delight. No one should ever think that small contributions given by those who don't have very much are worthless. They mean much because God takes delight in this. I myself have not had much opportunity to go out of the country. I have had opportunity to, you know, accidentally land in Canada when I was on the Boundary Waters on a canoeing trip. That's for another time. And then I've also been down to just just over the border into Mexico. But what I will remember is meeting some people who did not have much at all, who were willing to put out for what was for them a huge feast for us. Those who had not much giving the little that they had because they wanted to show hospitality to us. You see, it doesn't take much. All it takes is whatever you've already been given. The woman's two cents reminds us that whatever has been put into our lap is to be used for God's glory and kingdom. And the Lord takes note of the degree of self-denial that's present in that giving. James Edwards again says this, No gift, whether of money, time, or talent, is too insignificant to give if it's given to God. And what is truly given to God, regardless of how small and insignificant, is transformed into a pearl of great price. This is what's beautiful about this. You put the smallest, meager things into the Lord's hands, and he can do great things with it. Think about that boy who had the, you know, a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. And in Jesus' hands, feed the multitude. What can God do with the little that we have? If we'll place it in his hands. The second thing I want to mention is for those who have much, we cannot sit back on our laurels just because the gift is large numerically. Just because you think, well, I give a lot. I give a whole lot more. Maybe a whole lot more than a lot of other people. Here's my question. What sacrifice is involved in our giving? What have we given up in order to give? Let me ask that. What have you given up? What have you made a purposeful decision in your budget? You said, I'm going to give this up so I can give more to missions, so I can give more to the local church. What if our livelihood is sacrificed in giving them to the Lord? We as Americans are among the richest people to ever live in the history of the world. Even those of us who make not as much as others understand that if you're an American, you're making more than most people have ever made in the history of the world. So that means we've been given a capacity to give more for the kingdom of God than almost anyone ever else has ever been given. Why is it then that we become so quickly satisfied with our level of giving and congratulate ourselves when our giving is so little comparative to what we keep. When we keep way more than what we give, why do we think we're doing such a great thing? Let me challenge all of us. 
we should continually evaluate our giving. And we need to invite others into our life such that we can talk about our giving with one another. You know, why is it we can be accountable with one another when it comes to, like, prayer or Bible study? Like, keep me accountable, brother. Make sure I pray and read the Bible. When's the last time you said, keep me accountable, brother, on my level of giving? Right now I give X number of dollars. I make such and such money. Will you help me grow in my giving? That sort of transparency is rare today. But we ought to be concerned about our level of giving, just as we are about our level of Bible study, just as we are about our level of prayer. Are we diving deep into the joy of giving generously and sacrificially? Ryle says it this way, The stinginess of professing Christians in all matters which concern God and religion is one of the crying sins of the day and one of the worst sins of our times. The vast majority spend pounds on themselves and give not even pence to Christ. Let us mourn over the state of things and pray God to amend it. Let us pray Him to open men's eyes and awake men's hearts and stir up a spirit of liberality. Above all, let us each do our own duty and give liberally and gladly to every Christian object which we can. There will be no giving when we're dead. Above all, let us give as the disciples of a crucified Savior who gave Himself for us, body and soul, on the cross. A giving Savior ought to have giving disciples. All that we have is owed to the free gift of God. Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Gospel, the Bible, the means of grace, the hope of glory, all are undeserved. All are incomparable gifts. Freely we have received. Therefore, freely let us give. You see, in the end, at the end of the day, my point here this morning, I sure hope no one goes out if you're thinking this. My point is not at all to bash you over the head with a command that thou shalt give more than you presently do. If that was Jesus' tactic, he would have taken a completely different route here on this, on this occasion. He could have just said, give more, boys. He could have said something like that. But he doesn't. And of all the people he picked, he picks the most underpowering figure, a widow. She's humble. She's meek. She's neglected. But Jesus wants his followers to learn something of this widow's heart. You see, it's really not a question of a command that thou shalt give. It's really a question about your heart. I'm not seeking here some behavior modification where everyone goes out and goes, okay, I'm going to, I need to give more because Pastor Jess is talking about giving more. That's not the, not the intention at all. Jesus wants to, has to learn something about this woman's heart. You see, true God-honoring giving is not a matter of behavior modification, but it's a product of true heart change. When your heart is changed, you will give. As your heart is filled with God's love and gratitude for what God has done for you, you can't help but give as Christ has given. As you recognize that all you have is the Lord's, and it's been given to you for the purpose of investing in His kingdom, you'll actively seek out ways to find new ways, new exciting, creative ways to give, to make investments in something that lasts. How much stuff have we bought that now is on the, in the junk heap? Meaning nothing. How much is our heart stirred by the priorities of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? How much do we feel the need of the world to hear the mercy of the gospel in word and deed? How deeply do we recognize the opportunity that we have to send missionaries 
in a way that, to reach people who have never heard about Jesus. When's the last time we thought about that God has given us all this stuff we could furnish great worldwide evangelization? How much do we recognize that this life is momentary and the life to come is eternal? And most of all, how much do we recognize just what extravagant grace has been poured out to us in the gospel? Jesus is well aware of what's on the horizon for himself. He's about to go to the cross. His betrayal, his arrest, his sham of a trial, and his crucifixion are like literally days away, a day or two away. And of all the things for Jesus to do, he's focusing on this woman. And he's telling his disciples, this woman's giving. Why? Why does he focus on this woman? I wonder if it's because this woman has a similarity to Jesus. You see, this widow acts in much the same way that Jesus does. The cost involved to this woman didn't stop her from giving. She didn't you know, put off giving until a more financially opportune, advantageous time. She gave even when it meant giving everything that she had. Given this woman's financial straits, no one would have faulted her had she held on to her money. If this was a moment for tithing, you could reason through this. Okay, give 10% of what I've got. I've got two pennies. Okay, if I take 10% of two pennies, I've got, you know, a 20th of a penny. Well, if I break that down, I can't even give one penny, so I'm giving nothing. (laughs) And I tithe, because I can't even give that. Or, for that matter, she doesn't have to ask for change. She's got two pennies. Why not give one and keep one? She's really 50 percent. It's 50 percent of everything she had. You don't engage, see her engaging in either of those sorts of mentalities or reasonings or rationalizations or justifications. Instead, her love would not stop at half. She could not give anything but all. She gave all she had. She gave her very life because she knew she could place her life in God's hands. She demonstrated total sacrifice. This is a woman whose love for God compelled her to give everything, and she trusted God to take care of all of her needs. She felt secure resting in God's care. This woman models genuine Christian discipleship, the willingness to give all. You see, we're called to give all to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he won't settle with half of our heart, half of our property, half of our loyalty. He demands all. Total trust, total surrender, total commitment. But note this, dear friends. Jesus doesn't ask for what he's unwilling to give. And here's the incredible truth. God asks for everything we have, which, by the way, is all on loan from him anyway. In exchange, he gives us all of himself. God gave his own son on our behalf. And Jesus gave all to purchase us. He didn't hold anything back. He gave all of himself. And then he fills us with all of his righteousness, all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his grace. And he takes all of our filth all of our sin, all of our guilt, and He pays the penalty in our stead. We go from spiritual bankruptcy to riches beyond our wildest dreams spiritually. He calls us to give everything, which amounts to like two cents. And then in exchange, He gives us true riches, which are are ours forever. You see, the gift that Jesus gave was like this woman's gift. Because he gave everything, holding nothing back. Grace is sometimes referred to that way. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. We received the riches of God. And while we paid nothing to get it, it came at great cost. In fact, God spared no expense to give us eternal life and restored relationship with him. 
He gave His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave all to save us. Will you give all to Him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this marvelous text. This incredible event in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord. To think of all the people that He highlights and spotlights. It's this widow Because her heart was so right. Lord, I pray that you would develop those sorts of hearts in us. Because I know where that sort of heart exists, then the sort of external show of that heart will be in line with that which honors and glorifies you. No matter where we are in this subject, Lord, whenever it comes to the matter of giving, sometimes it's a little hard for us to hear and to think through because we recognize that we all have so much room to grow. It is so easy to get entangled with materialism present in our world today, especially in America. But the truth is, you have given us abundantly. So I pray we would respond to that abundant giving, to that sacrificial giving that you've given with sacrificial giving of our own. Help us to grow in this, Lord, and may you be honored and glorified through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.